The 2021 minor league baseball season started this week, and the Asheville tourists are back. The season's been delayed a month because of the pandemic, but it's a lot better than having no season at all, like in 2020. That's not the only thing that's different between post-pandemic and pre-pandemic minor league baseball. Post-pandemic minor league baseballs contracted from 160 to 120 teams. Major League Baseball is hopeful that by streamlining minor league baseball, they can pay players better wages and focus more time and energy on developing fewer but better prospects. Minor league baseball is divided into four levels. There's AAA, AA, high or advanced A, and low A. The Asheville Tourists are in the high or advanced A division, and they're now affiliated with the Houston Astros. When the Tourists last took the field in 2019, they were affiliated with the Colorado Rockies. But wait, there's another level of baseball, and it's been growing rapidly in the last 10 years. And this level doesn't cost Major League Baseball a single penny. Another level? There's four. There's there's triple A, double A, high A, low A. I'm talking about college baseball. In the last decade, college baseball has become increasingly competitive. And the path to the major leagues is just as likely to go through the NCAA as it is the minor league system nowadays. You're right. Major League Baseball is starting to use college baseball the way the NFL uses the college football as a farm system. Meaning they don't don't have have to pay pay for it. Yeah, we got a lot to dig deep into. Let's get Scott Freed home, the head baseball coach from UNC Asheville, and talk about some college baseball. And how about Nate Shaver, the manager of the Asheville Tourists, so he can talk to us about the minor leagues. Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoot. And I'm Coach John Shoot. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. First, we welcome Scott Friedholm, the head baseball coach from UNC Asheville. Welcome to Going Deep. Prior to UNC Asheville, I was at uh, Boston College. I was there for four years. Uh, Prior to that, I was at the United States Naval Academy for five years, the University of Maine for four years, and I started my coaching career at uh, what is now Bryant University, but when I was there, it was a Division II Bryant College. Um, and playing career wise, I'm a Northeast guy. I'm from Boston. So I played my college career at Providence college. And then I had a chance to play about a year or so, uh, in the minor league system with the Tampa Bay devil rays. But, uh, you know, when you get to that level and you see 25 other catchers that are a lot better than you, you know, you know, you're not going to be in a very long. So, uh, it was a very short stint, but uh, fortunate enough to, to stay in the game with through coaching. So thank you for having me on. Oh, well, thanks for being with us. That brings up, well, a couple of interesting points. First of all, you know, 
as, as we're talking, we're right in the midst of what some people were thinking is a cold spell. This is uh, today we're talking Thursday, uh, April 22nd. I'm sure you're telling some of your players, hey, guys, uh, back off. You don't even know what a spring cold spell is. I was I was coaching at Maine. <laughs> yeah, so true. I mean, uh, one of my very good friends is the head coach at UMass right now. We were both assistants at the Naval Academy together and they got nine inches of snow on Friday. <laughs> And they were supposed to play a doubleheader <laughs> on Saturday, and that just didn't happen. So, uh, and then, like you said, referencing Maine, when back in the early 2000s, it was 05, 2001 to 2005, I was at Maine. Our first 32 games every single year were on the road um, yep. out of 55. So, 32 were on the road to, to start the year, and then conference would start. So, we would then half of the rest of the games were on the road as well. So, we only played about 12 home games a year. So, oh, my gosh. When I hear 45, 50 degree weather, I, I'm out there in short sleeves. So. <laughs> yeah, let, yeah, let's go, guys. Suck it up exactly. a little bit. Exactly. Now, another thing that's interesting to me is, you know, in the major leagues, uh, I mean, there's there's an uncommon amount of major league managers. And I don't know if this is the case in college as well, that also played the position of catcher. Can you talk about that a little bit? And I think part of it is because your view of the field. I mean, the catcher is in is in every single thing from pitching to batting to fielding to lining up to everything. Could you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, and, and I think you nailed it. It's we are the only position that has to know what the other eight guys are doing or seven guys on the field. Um, we see what all their movements are, uh, and we just see it from a different perspective of a shortstop or a second baseman who who really only sees the batter and the hitter or the hitter and the ball coming at them where we see everything else. So um, I also think it's something where we have a different mindset of being able to work with pitchers um, and, and to, I don't want to say deal with pitchers, but put up with pitchers sometimes mm -hmm. uh, because they have a yeah. different mindset altogether of playing once every four days or so. So um, it's just, we have to have a different mindset and I think we have to have a bit more patience um, than some of the position players do naturally just because of what we have to go and talk to the pitchers about and settling them down in the midst of a, of a heated game or, you know, they just gave up a two-run homer and now it's a one-run ball game. We got to go calm them down. So we have to have – we also have to be a teammate, but we also have to be kind of that calming figure for a lot of them as it goes. And the last part, and I always talk to our catchers about this, is that their body language and the way they approach the game is how the seven other players in the field – are going to play that day. We mimic what the catcher does. If the catcher has energy, our team is going to have energy. If the catcher is flat, our team is going to be flat because everyone's staring at that guy. The recruiting in college athletics is, well, it's crazy at all different levels. In mid-major mid, mid schools like UNCA, it's just as crazy as it is at, say, Vanderbilt or LSU. It's just yeah. a little bit different. Correct. Now, I've always considered baseball uh, kind of a body of work sport. You know, I you, you know, whenever I was growing up, I grew up in Pittsburgh, a huge Pirates fan. And you never really knew how good a player was until he had 500 at-bats. Uh, uh, an old coach named Mike Holmgren used to always tell me, John, you can never draft a quarterback until he's thrown at least 1,000 passes. You just don't know what you're getting. Yeah. 
Well, at UNCA, there's no way that you have scouted or at LSU or Vanderbilt a thousand at bats of these 18 year old kids uh, that you're bringing into your program. And so how do you go about evaluating that body of work in an athlete when you're trying to make a decision that they're going to join our team? Because to me, this is what the Astros, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit with computers, with generating bat speed, with finding grips and spin on a ball, have kind of accelerated this process of gathering a body of work. They're able to do it in a batting cage where, I don't know, you might not be able to. Could you talk about how you you evaluate in that whole process? Yeah, and and the crazy part, Coach, is now we're asking to make decisions on 15- and 16-year-olds, not 17- and 18-year-olds. Because now kids are making decisions as sophomores and juniors rather than juniors and seniors. And not necessarily being held to those decisions until they're 18. Correct. Or until draft day. (laughs) Correct. Uh, On both sides, by the way, from the college side and from the players. So there's that's a whole nother tunnel or wormhole we can go down and spend another whole show on if you'd like. But, um, you know, the recruiting process and decision making process and the timing of everything. But, um, you know, you nailed it. We all have different problems and we all have different disadvantages and advantages. Um, But. You know, when I was at the Naval Academy, we would go out and we would see a kid from California. Well, we can't afford to go out a second, a third, a fourth and a fifth time to see that kid in California. It just wasn't physically or financially possible to do it. So what we had to try to do was spend our money to go see this kid in California, but get out there in a week where he's going to play three games rather than one game. And we just had to try to try to see as much as we could of that player the head coach at Boston college that I worked for, who was a pro scout um, as well, prior to getting into the college ranks again, his rule for us, for position players was we had to see 25 to 30 at bats before we made a decision. So for a high school kid, that's five to six games that we had to see him. He wanted us to see them fail. He wanted us to see them succeed. And then he would figure out that's what we're going to get somewhere in the middle. And that worked out well. Uh, and we've kind of come along that same way here at UNC Asheville for the position guys. We want to try to see 25 or 30 at bats before we make any decisions. You've nailed it with the technology. The technology has actually changed the pitching side of it the most for us because you nailed it. We can check velocity very easily. We can check spin rate very easily. We can check, you know, strike efficiency very easily from what they're doing in their bullpens. Now we do have what is called Rapsodo. Um, which is a um, technology tool for pitchers. It tells us release height, velocity, spin rate, depth, uh, movement of each pitch that they throw. And then we can also film off of it and slow it down so we can then change grips to try to make that thing happen. But now what's happening is all of these indoor facilities that are popping up have all of this technology in those indoor facilities. So we can get a 25-pitch bullpen of a 16 year old on a Rapsodo machine and they can just send us the report from Rapsodo. So we can kind of see what their numbers translate to what fascinating coach was as a sophomore in high school. And now what he is as a sophomore in college, he's on that same rate. This is the type of player we might be getting here. 
So we don't necessarily have to see that person in a game, which we still want it. But instead of seeing that pitcher five times pitch in a game, we may only need to see him pitch two or three times and then get two or three of those reports. And we're just as comfortable on our evaluation. hitting side is a lot tougher. Mm -hmm. The technology on the hitting side just hasn't come as long of a way as the pitching side has. We're trying to get there from a, from an industry standpoint. Um, but there's just so many more variables with the hitting because it depends on what they're facing pitching wise. Everyone can look good in batting practice. What can you do when it's coming in at 95 or 90, you know, high school kids are now throwing 88 to 92. That's the average now. It's crazy. It's crazy. So and with a and, and with two grips, it just exactly. moves a little bit. So velocity isn't anything that scares players anymore. It's can the guy pitch now? Okay, yeah, he throws ninety two, but does he have a secondary stuff? And that's the guy that that has success. You know, the guy that just throws ninety four doesn't scare us anymore because everyone can hit a fastball now. College sports right now are as much about roster management, especially in football, as it is everything. I mean, these rosters are turning over as fast as some professional league rosters are. Could you talk a little bit about your roster management and how often do you see an 18-year-old guy? You know, is there a percentage of players that come into UNCA that are – 18-year-old's going to be there for four years and be in a traditional course versus, hey, I got two years here, two years here, how your roster is evolving. Because I know UNCA is committed to undergraduate liberal arts education, and I, I, I want to be sensitive to all that, but college sports are crazy. Yeah, so um, about two and a half years ago, uh, we got our first junior college player. We weren't able to get him into school. Really? Academically. Um, it, it and when you was, say junior college, that could be community college, two-year yeah, college. Yeah, JUCO, two-year two, two colleges. Yeah, whether it's, um, you know, we got two from Brunswick Community College down in Wilmington. We have one from um, Wake Tech, and we have one from Florida State Junior College. Okay. Um, Florida State College, mm-hmm. um, Jacksonville is what it's called. So we only have three or four players on our roster that are junior college players right now. So typically what happens for us, and this is different at all of us. I mean, we, there are two teams in our league that have over 25 junior college players on their roster currently over 25, which is, I, that's how they choose to run it, which is fine. I don't, I'm never going to argue with anyone how they want to run their program. And I would like to have more junior college players because like you said, it's, it's more of a body of work. They're more mature, but they've also proven they can do it at a higher level because it's that level in between. And, and to be quite honest, a lot of junior colleges are as good, if not better than some four-year colleges, Sure, uh, the type of baseball they are playing. So if we can get someone to come in and step in right away and be able to play shortstop or center field or catch, heck yeah, we're going to take that and let a younger guy hopefully develop uh, for a year or so. But for us personally, we are still on the model of four-year students. So generally what happens for us, coach, is 
we try to bring in about 10 players a year, freshmen, um, and through attrition, whether it's academics or they're just not happy, we lose about two players, two freshmen each year. That is what our number is. So that brings us down to eight players by the time they're seniors. So that brings us to approximately a 32-man roster. So we are allowed a 35-man roster in college baseball. This year is a little bit different because of COVID rules, um, and it's going to be a little bit different for the next two years. It's going to be 40 next year, 38 the following year, and then it's going to be back to 35. We as a university and our athletic director, Janet Cohn, who has been outstanding for us and working with us through this whole thing, has asked us to keep it at a 35-man roster because of costs for COVID mm -hmm. testing, loss of budgets or loss of income and financial income because of ticket sales, the whole nine yards. And I am completely fine keeping it at 35. Um, 35 is a manageable number with only three or four coaches, right? Um, yeah. You know, we're not like basketball where we have 15 players, but we have four or five coaches to manage those numbers. And, yeah, and, and you said football has 10 or 13 coaches. Most football teams now have about 50 coaches. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, we are generally looking at one coach per nine or 10 players. So we okay. try to manage it that way. Now, the crazy part and what a lot of people don't know is we have a 35-man roster, but we only have 11.7 scholarships, right. where basketball has 15 players, but they have 12 scholarships, where football has 100 players, but they have 85 scholarships for the, F the FCS um, colleges. Um, you know, softball has 18 players, but they have 15 scholarships. And this is all because of Title IX. So we have to figure out a 35-man roster with 11.7 scholarships. So none of our players, I would challenge that there is not a single college baseball player in Division I baseball that is on a false scholarship. Really? Athletically only. Now, a lot of schools will throw in some financial aid and, right, right, right. or some academic money, not financial aid, some academic money that may bring them up to that full, but – most of our guys are on anywhere from 25, 50 to 60% scholarship. And so, then they're still paying. So Scott is Vander is like Vanderbilt and LSU and Tennessee. Are they also on a, a 11 man? What was it? 11 and a half scholarships for a 35 man roster. 11.7. Yes. Now it gets tricky because now you got to work private school versus public schools. Yeah, uh, and I, I worked mean, at, and I worked at a private school where the private schools like a Vanderbilt, like a Boston College and all the Ivy Leagues come into play is they have more money as far as academic money and financial aid, where state schools do not have that type of money. But we also don't charge. When I left Boston College, it was $67,000 a year. That was six years ago. It is now at $74,000 a year. listening to Going Deep here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're going to take a short break. Please stay with us. Welcome back to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're going to do something new here on Going Deep, and that's take some questions from our listeners. Our first one comes from Dan in Lebanon, Ohio. So, should my boy go to college or go to the minors out of high school? We're trying to figure it out and uh, just having some trouble. Interested to know what you think. Our answer comes from Scott Friedel. 
if my son, I have two boys, one is 12, one is nine. If one of them is a first round pick and he is offered $7 million, he is going to take that money and he is going to run. So I am very, I played with a guy named Matt White, who was the bonus baby. He was an 18 year old kid who got drafted by the Padres. The Padres made a mistake and didn't give him his original offer within 30 days because he was playing high school baseball and they wanted to respect his wishes. His agent was Scott Boris. Once 30 days is up, he becomes, he becomes a free agent. The Tampa Bay Rays gave him $10.2 million as a signing bonus because that's what it was. You can do that. There was no limitations. So I've become very friendly with Matt because we played together and now he works for the Boris Corporation. The Boris Corporation roughly says a college education, the average college education over a lifetime is worth $2 million. Hmm. So if you're not going to pay my client $2 million up front, he is not going, he is going to go to college. So if you ask me, Hey, Scott, do you think they should go to college? If it is a third rounder and loader? Yes. If it is a first or second rounder, go, go play college, go play major league baseball because they are investing in you. They are paying you. So I'm glad we talked about this. So I've done some research getting ready for this call. In 2019, there were 800 players on the 25 man roster of our 32 major league baseball teams. Okay. 28.5 of them, 251 are international players. Okay. So they, they're not us born. They're not drafted. They were just internationally scouted. That leaves 549 players of the 549 players, 60%, 59% of them are four year college players. They went either three years of four-year school or they went four years in graduate. They went college, yeah. They went 33% are high school and only 8% are JUCO. So if you're you're asking me what I would do, now here's where the kicker comes in. 40%, 40% of that 549 total of U.S.-born players were drafted in the first or second round. 40%. That's a huge number. Yeah. There's 40 rounds. That means there's only of the 38 rounds remaining, only 60% of them total are getting Uh to the major leagues. So if, if one of my children gets drafted in the first round and they offer him $5 million, go, you can always go back and get your four-year degree. If one of my kids gets drafted in the 25th round out of high school, he's going to go to college and he's going to try to make it his way up into that top five rounds yeah. where he has a legitimate chance of making the Major League Baseball roster. The Boris sliding scale of yes. $2 million is correct. Th- th- now, that's really now, interesting. John, take this into fact. That's the average school. What happens if he goes to Vanderbilt? Right, right. What right. happens if he goes to Boston College? Those numbers are skyrocket. And that's why, that's why David Price turned down first round money and still went. He turned around 30th overall pick to become the number one overall pick. He just made $6 million by going to three years of college, which is like playing double A. It's, it's the SEC is basically the equivalency of high A or double A baseball, what they're seeing every single month. They're prepared to play double A baseball right away.
Now on Going Deep, we're going to check in with our next guest, Nate Shaver, the manager of the Asheville Tourists. This will be my first year in Asheville as the manager. Previously, I was in uh, Fayetteville for the inaugural season of the Fayetteville Woodpeckers. Uh, with last year not having a season, um, kind of spent the whole year developing players as best we could uh, remotely and keeping in touch with guys and uh, going back and forth with them through through video and conversations and you know doing everything that we could for them to to develop while we were away and not actually playing baseball games. Uh, prior to that year, I was in uh, Bowie's Creek where we won the Carolina League Championship. That was my first year with the Astros. It was a great experience. Uh, the college campus there and Campbell University was it was a, a great experience for for our players and really grateful that they were that Campbell was able to strike a deal with the Astros organization and, and make that happen while our stadium was being built in Fayetteville. So as, as a baseball coach, you're traveling from spot to spot, or do you have a home base? You're in, you're, we're talking right now. You're not even in Nashville yet. You're in West, you're still in West Palm beach. Am I right? I am in West Palm beach. Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird. You know, you as being a coach, you kind of know that, I don't know if you really like settled down too much as a, as a coach, it's like, you know, you you, you are kind of where you are. And, and during that time period, you know, I think your, your family understands that in season there's, there are a few priorities, obviously the family's priority number one, but um, your priority with your, with your job is to be with your players and, you know, do everything you can for them. So my home base is North Carolina for a part of the year, but then, you know, I'm in West Palm and I'm in, in Asheville and, you know, traveling a little bit as we navigate the season. Talk about or compare the level of player, the type of player that you're going to be coaching this year to say the collegiate player playing in maybe the SEC, the ACC. What type of player is going through the minor league systems versus when they're age 18 deciding I'm I'm, I'm going to go through the college system mm-hmm. in which did you do Nate? Uh, I guess, I guess, first of all, I'll talk about the, uh, the structure and, and kind of how it's, it's been restructured. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a unique scenario for all of minor league baseball this year with uh, dropping down the number of teams that we have and trying to consolidate a little bit and expanding the rosters to allow for, uh, this this season to happen, um, we're going to have a few more guys on the roster. It'll probably be mostly comprised of pitchers just to fill innings coming off a year where they didn't play um, to make sure that they're as safe as possible and um, they can they can get the work that they need to get in without putting extra innings on arms or extra pitches on arms. So at our level, what we'll start with, the majority of the guys will be – probably second year organization guys. Okay. Second or third year organization guys. Um, because the year that they missed out on would have been the year that those guys would have gotten to this level. Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be a good group. What's really neat is to see, like see the development over year period and the, the way that the guys have pursued their craft or that they just physically matured more. Like that's, those are some of the cool ones. It's like, dang, dude, like you just, who is that guy? You know, he shows up. He's like, 
that's that guy huh you know yeah. and he's like he's crushing balls dead center out and like like doing stuff in the weight room that like dang man like this dude got strong you know so so, like, so will most of the guys on your roster that fit in there be are we talking early 20s 20 to 23 yeah. and that yeah 20 21 to probably 21 to 24 that's a uh -huh. pretty decent range but then it as, as you said you're, you're pretty familiar with the organizations and and kind of some of the rules that apply to to baseball like we can sign guys at 16 years old we can sign an international prospect at 16 you know they're not necessarily going to come over and play in the united states when they're 16 years old we have a a great uh, development uh, facility in the dominican that a lot of our latin players attend and they have some great coaches over there and they do, they, they receive a lot of the, the same technologies that we have to help them get better so you know, if they're, if they're young dudes and they, they sign and we help them develop, they may come over here when they're about 18, 19, and then potentially play in low A. Are the scouts for the Astros, they're out scouting players. Mm -hmm. And then they're kind of saying, well, this would be a good spot for them because we want them to work on this. Or is it more like they're this level of player, so they're going to go, we're going to put them here? Yeah, for the most you know part, they're, they're yeah. at this level. They're ready mm -hmm. to compete at this level and then mm -hmm. they, they get moved accordingly. So I think that's one thing we do pretty well within the organization is, is when guys show that they've had some success and they can continue to have success at the next level mm -hmm. and there's room for them at the next level, then, you know, we, we move them to where they should be and where they should, should start competing at. Uh, I think, I think one of the goals is to get them to the big leagues as quick as they can, but as prepared as they can be. Um, so that's, that's like that. You know, you're trying to get a guy there, but you got, you want to make sure that when he gets there, he's going to have enough success to stay there. That's a pretty young, you know, young person that's kind of, especially if it's somebody that's not from this country. Or right. English speaking. Um, you're, or English speaking. You're doing, I'm assuming, more than just developing them as a player that, you know, right. they kind of need support just as a human being. How much of, do you feel like, your energy is spent on just kind of helping people find their way as young adults. It's everything. It really is. Yeah. From, from day to day, those guys developing what their routine is going to be off the field and their routine on the field. It's, it's helping them helping along that, along that path and being that young, you go, I, you know, I'm thinking back to myself at 18. I'm like, dang, I went to college, play college ball and played a real short stint in pro ball, but like, it's, it's just crazy to think about like some of these yeah. guys, like if we sign these kids as, as high school kids, I mean, even as juniors in college, like you go through a lot of development just as a person from when you're a junior in college to, you know, when you're 24, <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, that's a huge a time. On. Yeah. That's yeah, a it, really it's a, it's a big time, time for development. Yeah. So it's, it's totally. Really, really important. Do you all have, um, um, like translators and counselors and stuff like that. Um, yeah, we do. We don't necessarily have translators. Um, you know, I, our staff, we're pretty good. Um, mm -hmm. like we, we pride ourselves in, in, in learning and continue to learn. I, I'm continuing to learn Spanish. I'm, I'm pretty good. I can communicate pretty effectively, but um, most of the time we at least have one uh, native Spanish speaker on each staff just to mm -hmm. make sure that, there's no disconnects and if there's any everything that needs to be addressed 
specifically can can be addressed that's not in not that, that's not lost in translation so um, but for the most part I, I feel like that's my responsibility as a as a staff member within within minor league baseball and with an organization to to be able to communicate with with everybody you know and it's my responsibility to learn and continue to learn Spanish and get better at it and learn each dialect too because like the yeah depends on where they're from yeah from mexico and the spanish from venezuela and the spanish from the dominican like they're all different dialects I think, were the first organization who really started using the word development coach. Mm-hmm. And development coach, well, it could mean a lot of different things. But from what I understand in the Astros organization, it has a lot to do. It, do, it doesn't replace any existing position coach, but it has to do with a lot of quantitative analysis, And could you talk to us a little bit about what a development coach does on your roster and some of the, well, really some of the science and the computer technology that the Astros are just, were on the forefront of in accelerating uh, prospects growth? Yeah, I wouldn't say per se that they're like, uh, what was the term you used of the development coach? Quantitative? Nah, uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that because okay. I'd say the development coach is he's the fourth. Potentially, he or she's the fourth coach, and they are a jack of many trades. They can throw BP. They can hit a fungo. They have a specialty. Our development coach this year will have a pretty strong background in um, kinesiology and weight training and catching. Um, he was a he was a catcher. Uh, but he can, he can do a lot of different things. He's like, for us, he's the guy that if you need him to do something, he can do something for us. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's the, he's the guy that can, can help do a lot of things, but then he also has other tasks that his own that he, he's got to get done. So he doesn't run really any specific data sets. He's not a statistician, um, but he's a guy that can help with all the technology Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Could you talk about what uh, uh, metrics or what computers or what how you're measuring bat speed, the spin on the rotation? I mean, the Astros are famous for having more computers in pitching uh, uh, batting cages and in in pitching uh, routines uh, than than any team in the country with regards to monitoring their own prospects. Will the tourists be doing quite a bit of that? Do we have a, is McCormick field loaded down with computers from every different angle, catching the spin of the the ball off, uh, off, off the laces? Yeah. So we've got, we've used quite a, quite a few different things, but I guess radar technology is the one thing that, that we do use in different forms. Asheville stadium's getting fitted with a, a platform platform called Hawk Hawkeye which is a new system that's being installed in the most all major league stadiums, as well as quite a few minor league stadiums. And it's, it's basically a, my understanding it's a, it's a monitoring system that, that helps kind of 
it, so it has a radar, but it also has a monitoring system for, uh, for players. And it kind of picks up where players are at on the field. It can track, it can potentially track like how fast they're moving and how often they're moving. It'll have all the, the same functions as, uh, the traditional, uh, I guess it's, I guess it's kind of traditional to me anyway, <laughs> the traditional, uh, track man setup that would be in a stadium. So that, that'll measure ball speed and where the ball is moving and how it's spinning and all that stuff. Which coach on the staff then is, is it you as the manager who's trying to accumulate all this, just, I mean, what I imagine are reams and volumes of, <laughs> you know, information yeah, that are I'm coming. Lucky, I'm lucky. I don't, I'm lucky. I don't have to like take it and break it down and do anything with it. Our, our, uh, we have within our organization, we have some really good people that, that develop some software and that work as statisticians and they have kind of their, some of their own things that, that they utilize the system for. And then they, they take the data and they make it presentable to the staff and then the staff can present that to, to players and, and help them get better. So we, as an organization, we have a lot of different pieces in the puzzle. Um, and it's, it's a lot of a lot of pieces with people that have really specific skill sets on the data end that can make it usable. That's what you want to do with data. Mm-hmm. You get data, you're like, how are we going to use this? And then you figure it out. Okay, we can use this for this and this. And then you got to get it to the players. And if you give it to the players and it's clear, then they can use it. <laughs> so, like that's kind of that's kind of the the overhead view from it is like, you know, what you, you can get all the data in the world. But if you can't use it and it can't help players get better, it's worthless. You're listening to Going Deep on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're going to continue our conversation with Nate Shaver, the manager of the Asheville Tourists. Just because we were around football all these years, you know, um, you know, most most players in college aren't going to go to the NFL. You know, it's like two to three percent or something like that, you know, actually get to the NFL. And then when you get to the NFL, you don't stay too long. I mean, the average person might be in the NFL for two to three years, you know, mm-hmm. um, in baseball, do you see things shifting at all? Are, are people who really have major league aspirations, do they want to get into the farm system as quickly as they can? Or are they going to college is, is college baseball, um, as, as much of a stream to the big leagues, as you just said, the, the minor leagues are like, I guess to answer that question, it's completely individualistic. Like, is this guy ready to go from, is he, is he mature enough to, to go from being a high school senior to a uh, fairly, if, if he's drafted and he does sign, he's going to be a pretty high, he's going to have to be a pretty high pick mm-hmm. um, within the draft and then potentially spend a certain number of years in minor league baseball maybe get to the big leagues by the time he's 21, mm-hmm. um, maybe. But it's for a, for a younger kid, like 18 years old, 
like we said earlier, there's a lot of development that happens between the just physical and, and social and psychological maturity that happens from the time you're 18 to 21. So it, it's whatever their best support group is, whether you go to college and you have a tremendous staff that, mm-hmm. that helps you develop or you're required <laughs> yeah. to go to college and go to classes and develop routines that revolves right. around your education and getting your education as well as playing a sport. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to prioritize your time. You have to develop a routine. And I think those are really good things um, in college, but, but you also do those same things in a, in a minor league organization. Mm-hmm. You, you do a lot of the same developing with your routine. And, you know, we have people on staff that, um, that, that help with your, your, uh, your maturity and like you're, I think you're communicating a lot more with people from, from a lot of different backgrounds um, within the minor leagues, which is really cool because mm-hmm. you're, you're crossing paths with, with uh, people from all over the world uh, really. Yeah. Cause we have, we have with, within our organization from athletic training to, to S and C uh, to statisticians to all sorts of people like, they're all from all over the place. And then the players they play with, like they're from all over the place. Yeah. So like you're getting, you're getting a lot of different perspectives and you're learning how to communicate with a lot of different people. You're part of the Astros organization and the Astros signature is going to be all over, you know, everything that you work for the Astros, but as a manager as well. And as a position coach, I've been as a coordinator, I've been, you know, I always wanted to put my signature on something it, you know, too. And if fans were to come out and watch the tourists, what's something that you'd like to put your signature on the brand of baseball that uh, these guys are going to play from uh, first to last pitch? It's, uh, it's high quality, good energy. Just get after it. Baseball, highly competitive. I think that's one of the things that, that, uh, that you, that you strive for in athletics and you try to make, all the situations that they're in as competitive as possible. I think that's, that's one of the cool things about being in the minor leagues is yes. Prior to getting to game time, you know, we're working on specific things, but then when you get to game time, it's compete. It's, can you go and get it done right now? Um, mm-hmm. Can, can you do it when it's on the line? And it's, it's cool to see the transition and the growth of players when those situations arise. We got this big poster in our locker room that I had in Fayetteville and it says bring the juice and basically what it means is you got to bring it every single day regardless of what's going on like mm-hmm. if you bring it you're going to have some success like you got to bring your energy you got to bring your competitive nature and you got to get after it and when they make it to double A they get to sign that that banner and then they go to double A that's mm-hmm. just one of our deals So this is Matt from West Asheville, a longtime listener, first time caller. Really love all the tough conversations you're having on this podcast. Uh, I was wondering, uh, how, how do the salaries of minor league baseball players compare with uh, other minor league sports like hockey or basketball players? Appreciate your insight. Thanks. Minor leaguers in baseball are paid far below the salary rate that they are in the NBA and NHL at the at commensurate levels. Um, and in 2021, the minor league has gone through and is going through some restructuring. 
Now there are 120 fully affiliated teams. That's down from 160 in 2019. Minor leagues now are being run from Major League Baseball's office in New York. In minor league baseball, there's four levels. There's two AAA divisions. There's three AA divisions. There's three high A or advanced A divisions. This is where the tourists are. And there's three low A divisions. Now, in triple A, the weekly minimum salary is between $502 and $700, which works out to roughly $14,700 over a five-month season in triple A. They get $25 per diem and don't get housing paid for. In the double A divisions, the weekly minimum salary is between $350 to $600 a week, and that amounts to about $12,600 for five months. In advanced day divisions, again, where the Asheville tourists are, the weekly minimum is from $290 to $500 a week, a week. Three low A divisions, the minimum is from 290 to 500 as well. And so in the single A divisions, players are paid for a five-month season $10,500. As minor league baseball contracted from 160 teams to 120 teams, those salaries actually increased. If a triple-A player makes it to the major league roster, even for just a moment in time for one game, they're immediately covered uh, by the major league baseball's collective bargaining agreement. In the minimum salary for your first major league baseball contract would be $46,000 a year. If you make it to the major leagues for a second time, say you make it to the majors, get sent back down, come back up a second time, your minimum contract is $93,000. Salaries are paid by the parent club. The DeWine family and the Asheville tourists do not pay the salaries of the Asheville tourists. The Houston Astros pay those salaries. The highest minor league level that a baseball player could play is AAA, and they would make $14,700 for five months. Compare that to the NBA's G League, which is $35,000 for a five-month season. And in the AHL, which is the National Hockey League's minor league system, the AHL, the minimum salary is $52,000 for an 80-game schedule. So comparatively, minor league baseball players are paid much lower than their counterparts in hockey and in basketball, which are probably more comparable than other sports because those are long seasons of, you know, 80 plus games. Do you have a question you'd like us to answer about sports, justice, or kind of anything? 
record a voice memo and email it to us at goingdeep at bpr.org or use the talk to us feature on the free BPR mobile app and we might answer it in a future episode. The next question for this show is a point of personal privilege from the producer of the program, another Matt from West Asheville, though maybe not West Asheville as it is known locally, but we know we have a lot of listeners outside of Asheville who are not going to care whether it's the West Asheville as it's known locally or not. My question for you is about what has happened over the past 10 years, the moves that have been made, starting with the changes to the Major League Baseball draft about 10 years ago, which instituted a slot system for signing bonuses. And as you mentioned earlier, a lot of these players, they get paid so little in salary that a lot of them are make their money off of their signing bonuses when they're drafted. Major League Baseball instituted a slot system similar to the NFL and NBA, which controls those. So starting with that, going through what has happened over the past decade and then the cutting of these, the contracting of 40 teams from the minor leagues, which is mostly in the levels between low A and rookie ball, this is sending a lot more players to college and going through the NCAA and university system. So the both of you have spent so much of your recent lives going on about the abuses of the NCAA and university system on high profile college athletics. Is this just another way for the NCA to force its way into another sport and take control of it? Maybe also coming at a time that it is losing control of one of its other high-profile and high-revenue sports, basketball. Well, I think it is indeed a way for colleges and universities to start generating huge revenue as basketball is kind of declining with players doing uh, one-and-done scenarios. College baseball, once a college baseball player commits to a baseball team, he's there for three years. An individual can be drafted out of high school. And out of high school, they can either go play for a pro team or go to college. Many, many, many more now are going to college than did 10 years ago even. And once they're in college, they're in college for at least three seasons. Now, they can get drafted again after their third season, decline to go to the pro team and come back for a fourth season. So in baseball, a player can actually be drafted three times. But the thing that's interesting here isn't necessarily in my mind that the uh, uh, NCAA is kind of gaining traction in the world of baseball as they're losing traction in the world of basketball. The thing that's interesting to me is that Major League Baseball is co-opting the NFL farm system. Uh, uh, There's it, one of the best things that could happen to Major League Baseball is for college baseball to keep getting better and better and better and the coaching getting better, better, the facilities getting better, better, the strength training getting better and better. Because now, like in the NFL, there's never going to be a successful spring football league or anything like that because the NFL has the greatest farm system in the history of the world, and it's free. It's called college football. It's free to the NFL. It doesn't cost them a dime. College baseball does not cost Major League Baseball a dime. And think about this, how, 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 how big college baseball is getting right now. This is fascinating. 
In 2019, there were nine college head baseball coaches making over a million dollars a year. There were 11 major league managers that didn't even make a million dollars. And so college baseball is really, really rapidly becoming uh, a farm system for Major League Baseball. And frankly, Major League Baseball couldn't be more pleased. Well, a few things come to mind as I listen to that. There's the difference between football and basketball and baseball is the international um, element of this. And it it's interesting to think about, um, I think the NCAA sees the writing on the wall that they better find another niche or they're going to disappear because I think both basketball and football are seeing ways to kind of cut their own deals and not really be a part of the NCAA the same way. But if the NCAA can find another niche with baseball and rugby, I'll throw rugby in there. So when you come look at this other sport that has an international presence um, and universities are trying to get a piece of that because it's a fast growing sport. Um, It's lower cost than football. You know, it has a, a draw and you don't have to pay as many scholarships and things like that. But from the rugby end of things, they want to be an NCAA sport. They want to get to that level of respectability and legitimacy. And so I can see how things like baseball and rugby are, those could be something where the NCAA is like, yes, will it be the same cash cow as baseball? I mean, basketball, no. But is it another way for us to get our clutches in (laughs) in for-profit sports and revenue-producing sports at the college level? Heck yeah. So let's figure out how to make that work. And there's just still enough cachet around, you know, what it means to be a Division I NCAA athlete that I think a lot of college players, you know, they want that. They want that, um, that ability to be legitimate. So there there are a couple of ways to look at it, but neither one of those things provide an atmosphere or a context for this international feeding of players into the system. So like it sounded like to me, a lot of the farm minor league baseball system is becoming more centered around international players. And I think there's still this part of rugby too, where there's still a way for you to play internationally and just not do college, but there's still a way for you to become become a really good player and play major league rugby without college. So it's kind of interesting to watch those two things happen. Anything the NCAA gets its hands on though is immediately poisoned in my mind because it just, it becomes less about the sport and it becomes more about control and revenue production. Well, we're happy to share a program note after our last show with Russell Dinkins, who is a former Princeton track star who has been 
advocating for on several campuses around for the reinstitution of men's track um, has had a great victory. Clemson um, has said that they will um, keep men's track and cross country. Um, and there, there's still some lawsuits in the air around equity issues at that university. But for now, there's a lot to celebrate. And we celebrate with Russell and all of his colleagues who were advocating for that move at Clemson. Congratulations, Russell. You've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. And make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.